In our position of gathering together this morning, our lesson will surround one that I've entitled the Son of God. And just a moment ago, Dennis read to us from Mark 15, verse 39, in which a centurion made the statement, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And he made those statements in the aftermath of the events, of course, of that crucifixion and the other things that so compel that centurion to that conclusion. Today, this morning, for the next few moments, could I invite you to journey with me as we reflect on the evidences, the things developed in Mark the 15th chapter. In fact, I hope that with your Bible, you'll go ahead and turn it open to that because we'll be spending a fair amount of our time this morning in the 15th chapter of Mark. And as we look at that chapter, we're going to proceed through the chapter pretty much in section by section. These introductory comments will set us on our course. As you and I know, the death of the Master, the death of Jesus, is a pivotal and central moment in the entire history of the human family. It is a center point, if you please, of the Bible. Later we learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that when you talk about the gospel, its primary features involve the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And thus, it's not possible to put too much emphasis on the death of Jesus. Just this morning, as you and I will do that, may I submit to you, it compels us and challenges each of us to analyze and examine our life in light of the events unfolded in this chapter before us today. What about the Son of God? What about that which Mark 15 puts before us? There's a number of verses listed there near the upper part of that slide, and in proper time and proper course this morning, we will revisit some of them. But let's, in fact, go ahead and turn to Mark 15 and proceed. Verse number 1 of that chapter. Let's notice the first five verses, please. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried Him away and delivered Him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. The day of the week was Wednesday. As this chapter unfolds, that's in fact the day of the week when things begin. And you and I quickly notice that that was an exceedingly challenging day for our Master. The events already in the week had been challenging enough, and now Wednesday has arrived. And as you can see on the slide, on the evening of that Wednesday, He observed the Passover with those who were His apostles. They had gathered in the upper room, and it was right after that that He instituted that special memorial known as the Lord's Supper. You'll appreciate rather well, though, that the Jesus had proceeded to the Mount of Olives that night after He had sung a hymn with those that were His apostles, and after some time there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas led a band of officers and soldiers and others, and as Judas planted a betrayal kiss on our Master, they arrested Him. And as you can see on that slide, when they arrested our master, they of course led him away first to the house of Annas and then later to Caiaphas. Jesus, you see, had suffered a sleepless night 
He'd been accused by many in the, in the wee hours of that morning. They, in fact, had brought false witnesses there and challenged him and charged him. This man was guilty of various and sundry things. And in many instances, as other gospel writers tell us, the accounts of those things which they shared really disagreed. But ultimately, one of the charges stuck. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of having an equality with God and making claims that only belong to the God of heaven. When the high priest made that affirmation, in fact, sticking that charge upon him, it was then determined that he, of course, was worthy of death. You'll notice on this next slide, here is a picture a picture that's merely meant to, to present a thought to the imagination of your mind and mine. Imagine Jesus, as Mark 15, 1 opens, appearing before these officers. Did you note the word consultation there in verse number 1 of Mark 15? When Jesus was there in the midst of those elders and scribes, they were convening to discuss the circumstances surrounding Him. What are we to do with this man? Remember, in the wee hours of the morning, the high priest had already declared him guilty of death. And therefore, this meeting of the council. If you'd like to make notes in your Bible, you may notice the whole council in verse number 1 is referenced. The Sanhedrin council had now gathered. And as this council had gathered, here were somewhat upwards of 70 individuals. And their charge and their challenge was to maintain the integrity and rightfulness of the Jewish system. This man has in fact lifted himself up as one who is worthy of death. The council was now making a decision. What are we to do with this man? As we revisit the previous slide, keeping that picture before us, you notice now, of course, it was Thursday morning when we arrive actually at Mark 15.1. This Thursday morning, the Sanhedrin council meets early. You and I probably realize that was far earlier than what they were accustomed to meeting. But yet as they met on this occasion, you notice that Jesus Himself, verse number 1 says, they bound Him. Imagine the greatest one of all. He's the Creator, remember? First Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. Everything that was made was made by Him. And yet they bound, they bound His hands. They bound him, arrested him as though a common criminal or thief of some sort. But then it says they carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. The Jewish council had already found him guilty, of course. And now the Sanhedrin had in fact made their declaration. They agreed with those sentences and so they take him away to Pilate. Now Pilate was a Roman official. He wasn't a Jew Pilate was one, you see, who was dispensed with maintaining the government and the lawfulness of that part of the Roman Empire. Executions had to be approved, you see, by him or his offices. Pilate was thus one who now would have the opportunity to listen to this man named Jesus. Verse number 1 says, they delivered him to Pilate. As you'll notice on that slide, the Jews, of course, as we just noted, had no power to execute, but Pilate would. And so that brings us to verses 2 and following. A conversation develops between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, no doubt, Pilate had heard many things in his position as leader. He had heard many things about Jesus. And now, this matter is raised. 
He perhaps had heard many make statements about and descriptions of this one, not only as a great teacher, not only as a tremendous and powerful man, but king of the Jews. And so Pilate's first question, are you the king of the Jews? And aren't you amazed that in verse number 2, Jesus said, you said it. Did you notice the Lord didn't deny what Pilate said? He, in fact, made an affirmation. You have said that, and notice Jesus did not disagree with it. Verse number 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. It is true, isn't it, that as Jesus, you noted in that picture, as the Lord appeared before Pilate, those chief priests and the other elders were just in the distance. And they, of course, were making mention to Pilate of the whole reasons to why Jesus was here. Here's what this man has done. Here's why we demand justice on your part, Pilate. But aren't you fascinated by what it says? They accused him of many things. Now notice the Sanhedrin council that had met earlier and the trial that had taken place the previous night had found him guilty of blasphemy, but they didn't mention that. He had been found guilty of one thing, and now before Pilate they mentioned something else. This is the most sickening mockery of justice of which I'm aware one can ever read. Here they accused the Lord of something different than that which they'd found Him guilty of not many hours before. And now, verse number 3 says, He answered nothing. As the Lord listened to, to their presentations... No doubt their orators and those who made their claims, it says the Lord answered nothing on that occasion. And so one more time, Pilate asks him a question. Verse number 4, Answerest thou nothing? Even Pilate was a bit amazed, it would seem. Now the book of John gives us some additional descriptions of what Jesus and Pilate talked about. There came a time when Pilate took Jesus off into a private area and they talked about something as amazing as the truth. But on this occasion, Mark simply points out, Answerest thou nothing? Many things they witness against you. But yet, verse 5 says, Jesus answered nothing. At that point, as you and I come near the close of that slide, could I invite all of us to contemplate, do you ever suffer injustices or wrongnesses on the part of others? Do people accuse you and me, sometimes in a hateful, mean way, of things that simply are not true? May I say, if they do, realize you're in good company. The Son of God endured it. Here were people making false accusations against Him. Here were individuals asserting things that were not proper and right about His character and that which He had affirmed, and yet the Lord answered nothing. He never sinned, you see, by disagreeing with them in some inappropriate way. May you and I take note that our character too... As Christians, we most likely are going to be on the suffering end of things that people say. Mean-spirited people who in fact have an ulterior motive and an agenda. But like I said, if we are, we're in good company. In 1 Peter 2 verses 21 and following, in the same way that the Lord had no guile come forth from His mouth, even when He suffered wrongfully. Peter was quick to remind those of his day, may your attitude be the same. And may that be careful words for you and me too.
Let's venture into verse 6 and following. What about the next segment of this chapter? In verses 6 through 14, notice with me how this proceeds. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said unto them again, What will ye then that I shall do unto, the, unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. On the notes on this slide, it appears that there is a very unusual Roman custom. Now perhaps this was a custom merely intended to appease those rather difficult Jews living in Palestine. But it seems that all four of the gospel accounts make reference to this custom. It was a custom that at once a year at this Feast of Unleavened Bread, a prisoner whom they desired was released. You can imagine, we don't seemingly know of any circumstances similar to that in the empires that followed. But it would seem to appease those unruly Jews, to appease those who so often had been involved in troublemaking matters in the Roman Empire. Maybe this was a means the Roman emperors had devised to ease these people. Once a year, we'll release somebody that they want us to. Well, you'll notice that time of the year had come and Pilate had what he thought was a brilliant scheme. May you and I take note immediately. Pilate did not think Jesus was worthy to die. More than once he stated, I find no fault in this man. In fact, did you notice carefully the wording of that verse, verse 10? Pilate was sharp enough to know why Jesus had been delivered. The text says he knew they had delivered him for envy. You see, they wanted the, the focus and the emphasis of the people. They wanted all the attachment concerning those things, and they didn't want any teacher who, in fact, was a competition to them. Jesus was gaining popularity and had done so rather notably, and the miracles He had performed were impressive, to say the least. People were, of course, giving Him great amounts of attention and, and great amounts of praise as one from God. And the chief priests wanted none of that. They wanted all of that directed to themselves, you see. For envy, the text says, they delivered our Master. You'll notice on that slide, again, Pilate thought of this brilliant scheme. Here is a way that maybe I can get out of this situation. It is that time of the year to release somebody, so maybe I'll suggest to them, why not release this Jesus? I don't find any fault in Him anyway. Well, you'll notice that circumstance is brought before us. In verse number 9 of that which we just read, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? You see, he was hoping that they would now permissively ask for Jesus to be released, but that was not to be. Because in prison there was a gentleman named Barabbas. 
I call him a gentleman, and maybe that's too strong a description. Did you notice the character of this man, this Barabbas? Verse number 7, There was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. The word insurrection means to stir up circumstances against the governing authorities. Barabbas apparently was one of those individuals, high-spirited, who in fact motivated people against these Roman authorities. And the Romans had captured him and put him in prison. And there he laid. And while in prison, notice, he committed murder. The book of John tells us he was also a thief. But you will notice he was a rather well-known insurrectionist. He was a rather well-known thief, such that the people knew very well who he was. This next slide is my attempt to ask you to contemplate. Here was Jesus and His appearance. You'll notice our Master was on the left, and I admit the picture isn't all that clear, but this is just one artist's perception. Suppose that man on the right was Barabbas. You can almost picture in his face a degree of spiritedness. He was convicted and convinced that the Jews were right and the Romans weren't, and he was going to motivate and compel people to act in a way that was insurrectional, causing up causing guerrilla kind of activities and leading people to cause trouble, even taking lives when appropriate. You and I know what that's like. People liked him because he opposed the Romans. And so they said, we want Barabbas released. Give us Barabbas. Did you note the language? Verse number 11, But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas. Please underline or even notice the word moved. The chief priest moved the people. As the people stood there in this courtroom of Pilate, remember Pilate had said, Do you want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? But the chief priest moved the people. You can imagine the chief priest walking rather quietly amongst the people and whispering, You know you'd rather have Barabbas. You know Barabbas has always stood firm for us. Ask for Barabbas. And so the people began to chant, Give us Barabbas! And Pilate, no doubt, quickly is led to ask, Well, what do I do with the king of the Jews? What do I do with Jesus? You'll notice as our master, he had already, of course, suffered many things, and you can see the picture of him bound. This particular picture shows him with chains on him. You might appreciate that verse number 13 says, They cried out again, Crucify Him. Here's what we want you to do, Pilate, with Jesus. We want you to crucify Him. And you can just hear and almost sense the excitement in the chief priest. We're going to get it. This guy has troubled us for three years now, and we're about to be rid of him. And they incited the people, beg, and you insist on Jesus' crucifixion. Verse number 14 says, Pilate, one more time. He said, why? What evil has he done? We noted earlier, Pilate had found no fault whatsoever in Jesus. He hadn't done anything worthy of death. And one last time, Pilate, in fact, asked, why? Why crucify him? He's done no wrong. He hasn't been an affront to the Roman government. In fact, he even insisted we pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar. 
Now, Pilate didn't make that statement on this occasion, but you and I know the Master had already said that in Matthew 22. Perhaps it's fair to notice as we close that paragraph, the next one picks up immediately. And so as you look at verses 15 to 20, imagine the tension in that room. Barabbas was now on the verge of being released. Jesus, based on their cries, was on the verge of being put to death by crucifixion. Verse 15 takes us to the next saga. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his, on, about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. The comments you'll notice on this next slide. The people had made their claim rather clear, motivated by those chief priests. We want Barabbas released. And so Pilate consented. Verse number 15 says, Pilate willing to content the people. You and I know from history the Jews had often developed much trouble for the Roman Empire, stirring up issues and problems surrounding Jerusalem and the temple. And so Pilate willing to appease them. I'll release Barabbas. But you'll notice verse number 15 says, He delivered Jesus when He had scourged Him. Immediately, as you and I notice, what a typical scourging might have looked like. It's a rather gruesome thought for you and me today, this, these 20 centuries, this side of it. But may you and I appreciate that in that day and time in the Roman Empire, something like a flogging, a scourging, it took place rather often in Rome. It took place often in that empire known as the Roman one. The picture on the left, the picture on the right, it seems as if, as near as I can tell, that the posture in which the person was tied varied from situation to situation. Maybe the person was tied to an upright pole, like this picture on the left. And then these specifically trained Roman soldiers would begin to flog away at this person. You'll notice his clothes were stripped off and there was no protection due to clothing. On the other hand, the person might be tied in a posture to a low post. And so you're back again exposed either way. And the Romans would whip away at you. These whips were specifically constructed. Usually they had three cords at the end of them. And in those cords were either metallic pieces or rocks or something like glass. And so each time those straps hit the victim's back or body, they would rip open parts of it. And soon there would be blood in rather significant amount. The pain had to be extraordinarily amazing. And yet the text says in verse 15 that Pilate delivered Jesus and crucified Him. And as he scourged Him prior to that, you notice in verse 16 the insult continues. After the scourging, it says that the soldiers led him away into a place where the whole band was assembled. Now, when the Romans, in fact, prepared for crucifixion, they made a spectacle of it. 
And the reason was rather clear. Whoever the victim was, they wanted that to serve as a public lesson and a public example so that all would realize what happens when you act like that. If you cause insurrection against the state, that's what's going to happen to you. And so they made a public spectacle of the proceedings surrounding a crucifixion because they wanted that deeply embedded in everybody's mind and heart so that nobody would question or cause trouble. And so it was, as you think about a man having been beaten like this, under the Old Testament system of Judaism, 39 stripes was all that you could was typically administered because it could never go beyond 40. But yet under Roman law, there was no limit. I suppose those soldiers could wail away at the victim until they got too tired to do it anymore. Whatever the scene was, many records indicate that it wasn't unusual for a person to die in the course of a scourging. But our Savior didn't. He survived. Back to the previous slide. You'll notice those insults that you and I had mentioned before in verse 16. It says they clothed him with purple in verse 17. So here was one who had been acclaimed now as king of the Jews. And so why don't we mock him one last time that way? And, and so it is that they put purple upon him. Now purple was the typical clothing of a king. It was one who was recognized as a high matter of position. And they even put a crown on his head, but it wasn't of gold. It was of thorns. The text says that they plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head in verse 17. And they saluted him. And you can imagine our Savior who was so weak after having the circumstances of the scourging. And here he stood with a crown of thorns and purple upon his body. And they saluted him as if they were saluting a king when they really were. And you'll notice verse number 19, it says, They smote him on the head. Now remember, the crown of thorns was already on his head, so when they hit him on the head, that drove those thorns into the skull, into the head of our Master. The blood now would have been coming from his head as well as from his body from the scourging earlier. And we notice they spat upon him. And it's something to think about, the insult that comes. You and I, how do we react when someone has the nerve to spit upon us? And they did our master. Verse number 20 finally says, when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes back on him. I might ask you to contemplate, remember now, that his body had already been rather sorely beaten the blood that had oozed from the sores on his back and all those wounds that had been inflicted, when they took that purple off, that no doubt pulled the tender flesh away from his body and only increased the pain again. It is with that in mind we come to the next saga. Verses 21 to 26. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour... And they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. 
Now, as we deepen our appreciation and our reflection on these matters, would you notice with me these comments, please, from verses 21 to 26? You and I know very well that this idea of crucifixion was a means of death. Now, the human family throughout the centuries has figured out many ways to put somebody to death. But may I submit to you, the Romans perfected crucifixion. As far as I'm aware, it to this day is regarded as the most heinous, the most awful way for anybody to be put to death. As you and I reflect on it, yet it was reserved for, and it was that which the Son of God here Himself experienced. Look at some of these comments with me. Typically, the way in which it was done. An individual, you see, was one that a cross had to be, in fact, constructed. Now, keep in mind, the Romans typically had the vertical post rigidly affixed in the ground, and it always stayed there. What usually happened was the cross beam was one which the person, the victim, carried. So in other words, it was just a log, a post, yea, long, and you as the victim carried it to the place of crucifixion. Once you arrived there, then that cross post was affixed to the vertical one. The typical pictures you and I have seen where Jesus carried the full cross, that likely isn't true. But He did carry the cross beam. That vertical post to which His hands are, are affixed, that one He carried... But isn't it amazing what the text says? It says in verse 21, They compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear the cross. It would seem after some distance that the Roman accompanying individuals, they compelled Simon who just happened to be standing there. And they forced him to carry that cross beam. Now, the text doesn't say why. And in maybe it's useless for you and me to speculate. Maybe the Lord had become so weak due to the loss of blood that He wasn't able to easily carry it any further. But we don't know that. Maybe it was because the Lord was simply walking too slowly due to the difficulty of losing all that blood and they wanted to get there faster. We don't know. Maybe Simon was wearing something that indicated to those Roman soldiers that he was a supporter of Jesus. And so, maybe to even make the matter worse for the followers of Jesus, they compelled him to do it. We simply don't know. But what we do know is that Simon was forced to carry that crossbeam for a fair part of the journey. You'll notice in verse number 22, they were headed to a place called Golgotha. This was a place just outside Jerusalem. In fact, it was outside the city, according to Hebrews 13, verses 12 and following. As our Savior arrived at that place with these others, let's go back just for a moment to that previous slide. You notice that as they arrived at that place, the text says, they gave Him wine mingled with myrrh. Even the Romans had enough sensitivity to them that this wine mingled with myrrh might at least deaden things a little bit so that when they start driving the nails into your hands and feet, maybe it would be at least a bit more bearable and you could stay on that cross agonizing and suffering a little bit longer. But aren't you impressed? 
And doesn't it stir your heart to notice that Jesus received it not? He took no deadening agent. He took no numbing medicine, if you please. He felt all of it. He felt all of it, my friend. Verse number 23, when they gave Him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, He received it not. And when they had crucified Him, they parted His garments. Back to that picture again. Jesus on the cross. As we stated earlier, once they arrived at the place of crucifixion, they took the cross beam and laid it down, stretched out the person's hands, and admittedly in some instances there's evidence that they tied the person's hands to the cross beam, but they didn't do that to Jesus. They nailed it. They nailed His hands. And of course that fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet as they drove those nails into the hands and feet of our Master. And then, of course, they would continue to affix that cross beam to the already established vertical post. And usually the person's feet were no more than a few inches off the ground. And yet there He was, a spectacle for all to see, agonizing in the pain of the moment. That picture is etched in your heart and mine. May it never leave us. Because the Son of God's who that was. Now Barabbas deserved this. He was the insurrectionist. He was the murderer. He was the thief. But the Lord was the Son of God. And He was the one in that place. He was the one on that cross. May I again say that this is just some artist's picture. I seriously doubt the Lord's body looked even that good after having been scourged the way it was. But at the very least, we can say this. Verses 27 to 39 bring us to the last part of the lesson. In the aftermath of these moments and having been prepared for it by these previous studies, verse 27 says, And with Him they crucified two thieves, the one on His right hand and the other on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, He was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on Him wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take, to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. 
I don't think I would have been able to stand and watch what just took place to Jesus. It would have turned my stomach. I would have cried tears to the extent that I think I would have been overwhelmed. Think about what that centurion saw. As you and I reflect on the remainder of this scene, there were two others that were crucified there admittedly that day, but they weren't the focal point. Jesus was in the midst of them. One of the thieves was on his left and one was on his right. And as you can well tell, the text says people passed by. Remember, that's what the Romans wanted. Here's what will happen to anybody who acts like this man has. So people were able to stand around and watch, pass by and look upon it. They were able to wag their heads. And that's the Scripture way of asserting that these people were insulting Him. You who preached three days, you'll raise up this, this temple. Why don't you come down from the cross so we can believe if you are truly the Son of God? Oh, what insult was heaped upon Him. And yet, you'll notice rather clearly... Jesus finally said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Son of God. He had reached that point where now darkness had fallen over the land. Our Savior was only on the cross six hours. I say only, but what torture was in that six hours? And yet you begin to see that when Jesus made that statement, some perceived He was calling for Elijah to come. And so they wondered and waited, will He come or not? And yet that centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now that Roman centurion was not a Jew. He was a Roman, a pagan, a heathen by Jewish standards. And yet he had observed the Lord's demeanor that day. He maybe had witnessed that Jesus said nothing in response to Pilate. Maybe he had witnessed that here was Jesus who although he had the power and conviction so evident in his characteristic demeanor, he humbled himself in regard to the cross. Maybe this centurion was one of them who in fact walked by Jesus as he was conveying him to Golgotha. Maybe he witnessed what Jesus said to many who were nearby. Maybe he heard what Jesus said regarding Mary. All of those evidences put together led that centurion to an amazing conviction. Truly, this man was the Son of God. That centurion realized the Romans had put to death the innocent one, had put to death the true one. As you and I close that particular slide, I'm reminded of the words in John 19.30. One of the last things the Lord ever said. He cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And aren't you a bit impressed by all that Jesus had endured? Remember, He had been scourged and He had nails driven in Him. And maybe you would suppose that His voice would have been so weak it would be barely audible. And yet the text says it was with a loud voice. It was finished. The powerful plan of human redemption was now put in place and the one, the perfect one had died was in the process of completing His death for all, not for some, so that all who would come would be invited to come. And that invitation is extended to you and me today. 
that invitation is extended. For Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. It might be that there's one or more in this audience who's burdened with sin. You've never come to Jesus initially, and yet you know in that position of being an alien sinner that you're lost. And this happened for you. Jesus didn't just die for me or for one of our elders or just for a selected few. He died that all may enjoy the benefit of salvation. But you see, that chore, the remainder of that's left to you. For indeed, we are saved by grace through faith. Heaven has done its part. We've seen it today. The remainder is left for your decision and mine. Will you and I be obedient to the commands of the gospel? The waters of baptism are what puts one into Jesus, according to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Maybe there's somebody in this audience that's never come to that point in life, but why not make it today? If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful and true to the calling of the gospel, may I say to you again, this was done for you and me. And even if you've strayed and wandered away, you can come back to your first love. We're about to celebrate the features of that crucifixion as we partake of this Lord's Supper. May we do so, taking our mind back to those scenes. And if you aren't a Christian who can do that correctly, properly, due to a life that hasn't been lived, such that your examination of yourself was, is wholesome, you need to make some changes. Why not encourage us, invite us to pray to God on your behalf? That happened for you and me, and truly this man was the Son of God. If we could be of any assistance to anybody today, we would invite you to come. And in fact, we would encourage it at once while together we stand and sing.